you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Julius Crime. Julius is the editor of American Affairs. It's a quarterly journal. It is one of my absolute favorite publications, an indispensable component of the so-called new right. We're really excited to kind of dive into all these substantive issues pertaining to political economy and so forth with Julius. Before then, then we, you know, we're going to go deep with Julius. So I, I, I know that we're going to go shorter here than normal. But before then, I want to dive into the two topics that we touched on in our introduction with the rate with Rachel Bovard last week. I want to just update you. So if you recall last week, we touched on Hurricane Ian, Ron DeSantis, and what was happening here in the state of Florida. And then we also touched on my former boss, Judge James C. Ho of the Fifth Circuit, who in a recent speech before the Kentucky Federal Society chapter announced that he was effectively boycotting Yale Law School, that he would not be hiring future law clerks from that cancel culture addled institution. So I just want to briefly update for the listeners, both of those stories. So the update out of the state of Florida is that Joe Biden, Brandon himself, was down here this past week to visit with the governor. He got a briefing. He took the helicopter ride over Fort Myers Beach to kind of survey all the uh, really kind of catastrophic destruction. I mean, my, you know, my heart just goes out to the folks there on the on the Gulf side of Florida, folks like Marco Island. Sanibel Island, Fort Myers Beach, man, I mean, some of these places are going to take years to recover. But from a political perspective, the key point is that Joe Biden himself, Joe Biden himself praised Ron DeSantis, told him, that, told him that he and the state of Florida were doing a good job as far as disaster relief and, and Hurricane Ian relief. So if you recall the beginning of this, this is what we said in the show last week, we said that it seemed like the media was really frothing at the mouth, or at least many were, to try to find some way, any way, to criticize Governor DeSantis and diminish what appeared to be his future presidential aspirations. But the president of the United States, Brandon himself, praised Governor DeSantis. So that says all you need to know. WAPO, CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, all the usual suspects, they might be able to try to find some sort of minutia to quibble about, but that ship has sailed. I think at this point it is very, very safe to say that Governor DeSantis has handled this very well, that he has escaped from this unscathed. Obviously, that is not the case for the state of Florida, which is going to take a long time to recover. And I would encourage you guys to, to the extent of your, of your financial ability, go ahead and, and, and donate because there are really just so many people out there who really could, could use your generosity if you would be so kind. Turning quickly to the other story, Judge Ho and his call for a boycott of future clerks from Yale Law School. That's not pertaining to current clerks, just future clerks. So Aaron Sibirium, my friend at the Washington Free Beacon, had a story last week where 12 federal judges, they didn't go on record, they went off record, but they told him that they agreed with Judge Ho's call for a boycott of future clerks from Yale Law School. Judge Ho's own colleague, actually, Jerry E. Smith, is a Reagan nominee to the Fifth Circuit. I know Judge Smith a little bit. Again, this is the court that I that I clerked on. 
he disagrees with Judge Ho. He said that his decision to boycott future Yale Law Clerks was, quote, regrettable and that he will continue to do so. I think what you're seeing emerge here, I think what you're seeing emerge is the same sort of divide that you see emerge in the political arena and in the right of center punditry commentariat space. You're seeing this divide between kind of the older zombie Reagan chamber of commerce crowd, the go along to get along folks, and this newer, thirstier, hungrier crowd that understands the stakes and is willing, eager, and able, and is willing and eager to take the culture war to the left. That appreciates that the leftist culture war fusillade is happening on multiple fronts and we can't just stand still that we act that we have to actually actively push back to actively contest them the only thing that i would add is that those 12 judges who went off record to aaron sabarium at the washington free beacon they should go on the record ted cruz tweeted this good for ted for tweeting this they should go on the record and, and support judge ho but we'll have to tune in soon and see if they go ahead and do so but let's go ahead and take it to a quick commercial break again we will be joined momentarily by julius Krein of american affairs stay with us Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back. So as mentioned, really happy this week to be joined by Julius Krein. Julius is the editor of American Affairs which is one of only a handful of journals that I have had in physical copy on my coffee table for a number of years now. I think that highly of it. If by some slim chance you are not already familiar with familiar with it, could not encourage you more to go ahead and check it out. So Julius, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I've been listening to your show since the first episode. You have really great guests. I'm honored to be invited on. Oh, that's so kind of you. Well, thanks for listening. And sorry, it took so long to get you on here. But let's kind of dive right in. And I want to get into substance, want to get into semiconductors, industrial policy, China, all the kind of hot topics that are right in your wheelhouse. But before we get into the substance, let's, let's start out at a slightly higher 35,000 foot altitude level viewer. So, you know, for the listeners who are less familiar with you, because I think by your by your own admission, you kind of actually made a joke at your own expense about this on our mutual friend Rob Sharma's podcast recently. You know, you're not like a prolific tweet or anything. So for those who are less familiar with who you are and by extension, what American Affairs is, why don't you kind of just tell us a little bit about both of those? Uh, yeah, uh, no, I've had a pretty weird journey. Uh, I think it's fair to say um, my background is actually in finance, uh, investment banking, private equity. I did some work in uh, frontier markets, as they're called, Africa and the Middle East at one point, and then kind of a more conventional hedge fund. And I ended up getting into this uh, totally by accident, uh, sort of after a bizarre series of events in 2015, 2016, started with an anonymous blog called Journal of American Greatness. Uh, and that led to American Affairs, which is a uh, a quarterly policy journal um, focused on, I would say, political economy, 
uh, that we really cover everything foreign policy, more theoretical stuff uh, as well from time to time. Um, yeah, and as you kind of alluded to, uh, in a way, maybe we we operate more as like a sort of makeshift uh, think tank, um, kind of really focused on uh, policy and, and advancing policy and not so much as a kind of pure media organization focused entirely on, on views or audience or things like that. Um, but we do publish uh, the quarterly and that's kind of our main product. Um, and, and yeah, as you said, a, a lot of our work is on industrial policy and reindustrializations and kind of correcting the errors um, of, of the consensus that dominated U.S. policy after the Cold War, um, but that now I think is, is really starting to change. So if I, remember, if I remember correctly, issue one of American Affairs was early 2017. It, it was basically coterminous, coextensive with the beginning of President Trump's presidency. Uh, was that purely coincidental happenstance because, as you alluded to, it kind of came out of the Journal of American Greatness, which had folded by then? Or were, or were you guys, I, I guess what I'm asking is at the beginning, were you, were you and Glad and everyone else who was there at the get-go, were you guys consciously, deliberately trying to be kind of the intellectual wing of, of MAGA, so to speak? Yeah, we launched in February 2017, and that specific uh, launch date may have been a uh, mostly happenstance, but... It's fair to say that uh, both the Journal of American Greatness uh, and American Affairs were really responding to the uh, what you might call populist ferment and really for the first time serious challenges uh, to the policy consensus that had really dominated um, since the since the end of the Cold War. Um, and, and Trump uh, certainly was the most successful politician in kind of attacking everything from failed economic policy to failed foreign policy. Uh, but at that time, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders also launched a surprisingly successful uh, primary campaign. And from the beginning, we were always a, a real forum for populist voices from left, right, across the, uh, across the spectrum. Uh, we we would have loved it uh, if uh, the Trump administration had you know fully embraced our policy positions. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair to say that that did not happen. Um, though though they they certainly moved uh, in some directions uh, that we would advocate for and are very supportive of. Um, and increasingly, uh, you know, this is no longer just a populist thing. I think there's been real movement among uh, the kind of left of center establishment uh, on a lot of areas around industrial policy, trade. Uh, and so forth. Um, so, it, it, you know, it feels it feels to me like in a lot of cases we're moving from kind of the dissident fringe to um, the establishment consensus in some respects. Totally. I mean, my kind of sense, just based on the various Capitol Hill friends, the folks in D.C. that I communicate with regularly or semi-regularly, my sense is that American Affairs is widely read by all the right people that you and Gladden and everyone else involved would want it to be read by on the Hill and elsewhere. So I think your influence is only growing and, you know, it was, it was, it was already pretty high during the Trump administration. But you, you, you kind of alluded there to the dead consensus, if I can kind of sloppily borrow the phrase from that famous March 2019 First Things Manifesto. If you had to kind of roughly characterize the dead consensus that this podcast, that American Affairs, and among other institutions and organizations are kind of uh, in place to give an alternative to, how would you describe that? What, what exactly is the dead consensus where the capital C conservative, capital M movement, so to speak, just went so far off the rails for decades? 
Uh, let, let me let me start out uh, kind of generally, and then we can we can go into the particular kind of conservative version of it, if you like. Um, but it, it's really the the kind of end of history mentality, um, the idea that the U.S. model simply triumphed after the Cold War, um, and and there was and, and it, you know this is I'm not quoting Fukuyama here. I'm simplifying, but the uh, you know all the all the big questions were answered um, was kind of the view. And the only thing left that we really needed to worry about was sort of uh, global integration. Um, and and the more the more we did trade with China and so on, you know, that would of course lead to peace and and uh, harmony uh, on a foreign policy level, and, and also this notion that we really didn't have to think about strategic economic competition um, with anyone anymore. Uh, the the market would just solve all these problems. And if it happened to be the case that all of our manufacturing jobs uh, were being lost to to China and Asia, um, that we had an increasingly sort of financialized and unbalanced economy, um, you know, that that was nothing to worry about. That was actually a good thing. Uh, The people who were complaining just didn't understand how markets worked. Uh, And then I think, you know, obviously the first uh, big crisis, uh, the financial crisis was kind of the first big challenge to that. Um, And... You know, during the Obama administration, the the reaction to that didn't didn't seem to solve any problems, and that led to I think the the big Trump challenge, uh, which uh, even if people today still don't agree with Trump or sort of see Trump as this crazy scary thing, um, they're so scared of of what that represented that I think they've reflected on a lot of the failures of those years and, and have started to at least think about updating their positions. Um, I think the conservative side of this. Um, it's really, there's a really interesting book out there that I read recently by Gary Gersel. It's called the rise and fall of, of neoliberalism. And the conservative side of this was a sort of accelerated fusionism. I'm referring of course, to the kind of 1950s William F. Buckley kind of approach of combining, uh, you know, economic libertarianism with social conservatism and national defense and all that. Um, and that that involved uh, what what a lot of people call market fundamentalism. It's a very, very strong view that that markets were perfect and would, would allocate capital perfectly. Uh, with this view that um, markets also went hand in hand with traditional values uh, and and patriotism and things like that. Um, and I think in an era of of woke capital, of ubiquitous pornography rampant drug problems, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that, that view is really broken down. Uh, and it's, it's almost beyond a dead consensus. It's, you know, I think it's hard to find any serious person who really, really buys that anymore at all. Yeah, I'm happy you mentioned fusionism. So NACON 3, the third National Conservatism Conference, at least the third in the U.S., took place just about a month ago in, in Miami. And I, I spoke at and I attended and made the panels I did not speak at. And one of my very favorite panels that I attended was it was a panel about fusionism. Uh, it, was, it was entitled "1960s Fusionism: What Went Wrong." Would strongly encourage the listeners of this podcast to go ahead and check out some of those speeches on the National Conservatism YouTube page. Uh, Paul Gottfried, Jason Jewell, and Dan, Dan McCarthy all gave really kind of excellent speeches about fusionism and its various failures. So. Julius, I want, I want to transition soon to some more nuts and bolts on political economy, which, of course, is kind of your bread and butter and American affairs is bread and butter. But 
I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask at least one question about foreign policy, because one thing that I think is really interesting about your background, and I think if I had to guess, has kind of led you to take some of the positions that you now hold and advocate for, was your experience kind of briefly living in Afghanistan and kind of seeing, you know, Bill Crystal era kind of saber rattling neoconservatism in action. So I, I'd be curious if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, what were you doing in Afghanistan? What did you see there and how? Yeah. Uh, so I was a subcontractor for the, it was called the Task Force for Business Stability Operations uh, as part of the Department of Defense. Uh, and it was a, about as effective as it sounds. <laughs> um, it, uh, you know, I was involved, the main project I was involved with, they called it an ICT, uh, Information and Communications Technology Incubator uh, in Herat, Afghanistan, um, which basically, you know, they, they were buying internet from Iran actually at exorbitant costs. Um, and the main, <laughs> the main use of this thing is, is like the uh, children of the, local uh they were called poppy princes you know the children of the local uh drug lords essentially uh would come in and, and use the internet at this place to uh to watch porn um because this was basically the only internet in afghanistan you know fast enough to allow for streaming video um, <laughs> God. so that, that's just sort of an anecdote of, of what was going on there and the the sort of level of failure that i saw uh, you know, there was stuff like the U.S. would build a slaughterhouse um, to, for cattle. And it would, it, you know, it had like 10 times the capacity of all the cattle in Afghanistan. Uh, but that wasn't even the worst part of it. The Italians had actually built the exact same one a mile up a road the year earlier. You know, just this ongoing level of failure, um, so different from the conversation in Washington uh, and, and that even leaves aside kind of the, the dynamics around the Taliban and, and all, you know, in Afghanistan, you, you would talk to people like, where are the Taliban? Where, you know, what are they doing? It's like, you know, the Taliban is just somebody's cousin. And it's just so much more complicated than any of the discussions in the U.S. And, and the kind of the reaction I had to that was, you know, we're not we're not turning Afghanistan into America. We're, we're turning America into Afghanistan. Um, and in many ways, uh, also what I saw in a lot of, uh, my work in Africa, you know, there's a kind of a joke in certain parts of Africa that we, we knew things were going downhill when the electric grid stopped working. Um, and now of course that's an increasing problem in, in the U S uh, and a lot of, a lot of the kind of dysfunctional politics that you see in a place, uh, like Nigeria, um, I began to see more and more in the United States, as well as um, the kind of economic model uh, that's built on kind of a very unbalanced, highly concentrated system of, of uh, in the U.S. case, kind of intellectual property rents disconnected from uh, investment in strategic sectors. Uh, you know, speaking of NatCon, um, you probably recall Peter Thiel mentioned he compared sort of Saudi Arabia yep, yep. and Silicon Valley, uh, kind of pointing out that the oil, the oil dollars in Saudi Arabia funded kind of uh, radical Wahhabism, and in Silicon Valley they they caused wokeness. I, I would add, kind of from an economics, political economy perspective, like there's another key similarity there, which is in the Saudi case. Um, 
it, it, you have you know what's called petrodollars. Uh, they they get all these rents uh, from selling oil, and they actually have few or zero opportunities to reinvest them in Saudi Arabia, in part because it's a small country, in part because the leadership class there you know, has interests, shall we say, beyond national development. Um, it's actually a very similar thing in in Silicon Valley, where you have all these intellectual property rents. Uh, but you have very few internal opportunities to reinvest them in these companies because all the capital intensive physical production and so on has been offshore to Asia uh, and elsewhere. Let's take it to a quick commercial break here. On the other side, we're going to get into political economy, industrial policy and all that. So stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. So, Julius, uh, you and I have a mutual friend in Oren Cass, and Oren launched his group, uh, American Compass, about two and a half years ago now. Oren was also a previous guest on this podcast. And when he first kind of rolled out what American Compass was, you had an essay that I, I, I really, I personally thought was excellent. It was entitled Planning for When the Market can, Cannot. And it was kind of an, an attack, not so much, I would say, against Hayek per se, but against what we might call zombie Hayekianism, the same way that there's like zombie Reaganism, zombie Borkism and antitrust and so forth. So talk to us a little bit about this essay and kind of your, your, your critique of how some have interpreted Hayek's discussion of the so-called knowledge problem when it comes to markets. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that essay really had two parts. Um, the first one uh, or the first point is, you know, I'll, the, the kind of zombie Hayekian position is basically that um, Hay what Hayek says is that planning is just always impossible um, and, and no one can ever do it. And it's always going to fail. Uh, and that, of course, is just factually untrue. One can point to many cases of just just to stick with narrowly an in industrial policy of successful uh, planning, uh, whether it's Taiwanese semiconductor industry, uh, whether it's kind of Israeli defense technology industry, um, Chinese, certain Chinese manufacturing sectors, arguably even the early Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, the second point I think is uh, there's, there's this, the, the kind of basic Hayekian, or maybe one of the things Hayek is most remembered for is, is the price system. Um, Prices communicate information uh, in, a, in a decentralized way more efficiently than any any centralized planner can ever know, uh, and so forth. And like you said, I don't necessarily disagree with that underlying uh, framework. Um, the problem is, however, that the information prices communicate doesn't necessarily lead to a perfect order. Uh, in the way that kind of zombie Hayekians would would assume. So, 
for example, um, if uh, if a state, let's say China, uh, is is massively subsidizing a particular manufacturing industry with large uh, grants, um, subsidized lending, perhaps in some cases even slave labor, the price system is going to communicate all of that. And what's going to happen is that uh, the returns on that industry elsewhere, let's say in the United States, uh, will become less and less attractive. Uh, and so if you simply follow that track, um, you'll end up losing uh, many key sectors. Uh, and then when you say have a pandemic um, and all of a sudden you can't make masks or generic drugs uh, or whatever, um, or if there are other major disruptions uh, in in the global trade order, um, that's a major national security challenge. In addition to whatever uh, kind of macroeconomic problems and and uh, you know deindustrialization, deaths of despair, all those other issues that arise. Um, so I, I don't think that the Hayekian framework uh, has really accounted for a lot of that. Um, and the other thing I would say kind of more broadly, uh, I think the kind of uh, libertarian or neoliberal um, approach has has failed to grapple with is, you know, the more the more powerful you allow corporations to be, they will also become more powerful at lobbying for special favors. Um, yep. There's a big difference between capitalism, which, you know, basically imagines perfect competition and so on. And the capitalist who wants nothing more than monopoly, nothing more than a secure government contract, etc. Um, so it's kind of interesting that a lot of you know neoliberalism originated out of concern with the mid-century order. These like big, uh, sort of at the time sleepy companies, you know, AT and T and IBM. It was called the Nifty Fifty. Um, but what it's actually led to, uh, in part because it, it, it empowered uh, all these large corporations while eviscerating any sort of countervailing powers, whether, whether unions uh, or the state or civic institutions or whatever, um, is you've ended up, you know, you've gone from the nifty 50 to like the fang five um, and, and a lot more issues with, with antitrust and, and corporate stagnation, you know, Boeing, uh, Intel, IBM, et cetera. These are all kind of failed dying companies that increasingly actually rely on bailouts. And when you have something like the finance, you know, the, everyone is so afraid of like government getting involved to support development. But what we've been doing in the United States is actually kind of drifting along. And then we have a crisis and then we have huge bailouts that are rushed and kind of poorly done. Uh, and you end up with uh, government being more involved you know, than ever without actually doing anything to address the underlying problems or promote, uh, you know, proactively promote development and innovation and, and a healthier economy in general. I wonder if we have to rename the Fang Five now. Now that Facebook is 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 Meta, so for those of you not going to plug, yeah, and, <laughs> and Facebook is rapidly falling out of it. But anyway, yeah, 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 right. I, I, Fang for those of you who are not kind of up to date with your financial jargon refers to Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. So um, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to rename it the the Mang Five. So it doesn't really quite have the same cachet. But uh, let's kind of 
take what you just said and, and now try to apply it. So that was really that was really well said about kind of the the, the shortcomings of kind of uh, zombie Hayekianism. I'm not sure if anyone has has used that term or if I just kind of created a neologism right here on this podcast. But regardless, let's apply that to industrial policy. So Julius, I remember you and I got lunch in Boston last December, and if I recall, I kind of just. I kind of asked you, I was kind of just racking your brain and I said, you know, what is the single biggest issue right now confronting the U.S.? And with, with very little hesitation, you said, uh, you know, our lack of manufacturing and industrial policy. So uh, why is that? I mean, kind of just make the straightforward case, uh, I guess, for the listeners as to why that is not just a big issue, but really the big issue of our time. There's there's sort of at least two sides of it. Um, the, the one that's easiest to understand is simply kind of a national security geopolitics side of it. Um, you cannot be a great power. You cannot maintain your position in the world if you lose all of your strategic industries. Um, you know, the United States, I think now accounts for 0.5% of, of commercial ship construction. Um, we did a deal, it was controversial with Australia and the UK on submarines a while ago. Uh, we pushed France out. There was a whole yep. controversy over that. We now can, we can't actually build the submarines. We won't be able to deliver. Them. No kidding. I didn't even realize um, that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there was a few years ago, uh, there was like a terrorist attack. Uh, I don't actually remember if it was a terrorist attack or some people just got drunk and started shooting at a power plant in California. I think it was. <laughs> Um, but they came very close to damaging it in such a way that it would have been knocked out for like five years because we could not build the, the replacement parts. Um, we already talked about, you know, uh, Larry Summers, um, who's who's uh, I think very intelligent guy, um, but known as kind of an architect of the neoliberal model during the pandemic, you know, tweeted kind of. Uh, somewhat humorously for those of us who've been uh, on the opposite side of him from some of these issues. So like, how can the most advanced economy in the world not pr not be able to produce masks and basic medical equipment? Um, and the answer to that is you're not the most advanced economy in the world if you can't do that. Um, it's also, I mean, you mentioned Russia, Ukraine earlier. I, I think it's, it's kind of very, maybe the most interesting about this whole thing to me, um, <laughs> assuming it doesn't end in nuclear war. Uh, is that, you know, initially people would have assumed that Russia's greatest power was military and its greatest weakness was economic. Well, Russia's military, I would say, has severely underperformed expectations. Right. Um, but its actual economic power. Oh, yeah. Very well said. Um, yeah. Has proved quite considerable and, and is causing all kinds of, of damage throughout Europe and, and so on. Uh, and that's because, you know, GDP figures... Uh, if, if all of your economy is a service economy and you can't actually produce essential goods and maintain essential supply chains, you know, having a lot of overpriced uh, McKinsey consulting services doesn't do you a lot of good. Um, likewise, you know, China is now the leading trade partner uh, with most of the world, um, including many Latin American countries in its own backyard or in our own backyard. Uh, and, and every time that happens, you see, not surprisingly, those countries will change their vote in the UN on on Taiwan. And again, everyone thought, oh, 
the U.S., the West, though, will dominate this international coalition against Russia. Well, it turns out that, you know, essentially all of the global south has aligned with with China and Russia in this recent uh, recent conflict. Um, so I think all that is is very, you know, very serious. And, and I, I think increasingly straightforward and maybe even not even controversial anymore on the national security side of it. On the economic side of it, this this one is a little more uh, complicated, I think. Um, but in very simple terms, uh, or maybe not simple, but in the in the most concise way I can explain it, um, I think we've misunderstood what what financial markets do, um, and what what actually the importance of production is. And what I mean by that is what financial markets do is they essentially maximize financial returns or what you could say is capital efficiency. Um, and that is a different thing than growth, GDP growth, productivity growth, even in many cases, corporate profits. Apple, for instance, its corporate profits between uh, 2015 and 2020 um, maybe increased 10% its stock price like quadrupled. Um, and what that means, uh, simplifying a few steps, but what that means is that in a lot of cases, it is more profitable for companies to actually underinvest, do share buybacks, uh, et cetera, um, rather than invest in the next great technology or rather than invest in producing things. Um, and that production, you know, there's, there's two issues with losing production, uh, which is where all the kind of costs and capital intensity and issues like, uh, environmental regulation and, and unions and, and all the things that are complicated come into play. One is that as you lose production, there's also in many industries, you lose a lot of innovation too. Um, you know, we've seen that with Boeing, for instance, the more and more they offshored the manufacturing, the more and more they offshored a lot of the uh, innovation and, and, and R&D. Um, and the net result is something like the 737 MAX that can't fly. Um, <clears throat> the other part of it is this is the production side is actually where a lot of the a lot of the profits are sort of distributed throughout the larger economy. Um, so if you compare, for example, you know, the, the heyday, the golden age of the 1960s economy or whatever, the highest profit industries were also the largest investors and the largest employers. I'm talking your classic big integrated companies, Ford, GM, Boeing at that time. Um, today, very different. The most profitable countries, namely, you know, the Silicon Valley Fang Group and, and a few financial institutions, they have very low investment needs and, and relatively low employee headcounts. So those profits are not really being uh, you know, pushed throughout the economy. And the other thing about losing production is that you also lose a lot of uh, capacity for productivity growth. There's all kinds of, of studies, which I think common sense uh, tends to verify. Um, you know, for every manufacturing job in an area, you, know, you get um, two or three uh, indirect jobs. And this also, you know, productivity is doing 
doing more with less. And if you're not making actually improvements in producing more goods with fewer inputs, you know, you're not going to have productivity, which has, of course, been plaguing the U.S. economy for for some time. So uh, that may not all have been straightforward. And uh, I, I could keep it's longer the, the problems are quite quite uh, you know numerous, so the explanations tend to be multifaceted. Um, but hopefully, that's a good start. We have a long way to go. Like I think, you know, in addition to the concerns about China, like things like chips are kind of the the most primitive form of industrial policy. Um, you know, simply writing checks to industry incumbents uh, in some cases is unavoidable, but it's certainly not ideal. Um, and it's been such a long time since we as a country have thought seriously about about these things that we have sort of a lot of catching up to do. Uh, but I mean, you know, the, the next part of the conversation is, is shifting to things like how do we involve um, the American investment community in these efforts, which has been, if you, if you study kind of industrial policy across uh, countries and history, you know, that involving kind of, uh, market forces and market competition in it, you know, towards the strategic goal is kind of the key, a key uh, contributor to success. So I think the fact that um, our conversations and and policy ideas are advancing even beyond the CHIPS Act um, is even more promising than, than getting over kind of the initial hump of like, can we even do this at all? Which as you said, five, five six years ago was like unthinkable. Uh, so I think there are a lot of causes for optimism, um, but but also a lot of work to do. Well, on that note of more work to do, Julius Kryan, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks again. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Thanks again to Julius for stopping by. So I think the listeners of this show now, between Julius Crime, between Oren Cass, and surely between some other guests that we've had as well, you get a flavor for the sense of economic policy, the sort of more nationalist, kind of consolidationist, kind of cohesive set of economic policies that this show is trying to promote, which I think stands in contrast, not necessarily diametric opposition, obviously, but at least in more nuanced contrast with the sort of uh, with the sort of zombie three cheers for capitalism, free trade, maximalist, absolutist, laissez-faire extremism that has predominated large swaths of the libertarian inspired conservative movement for many decades. Now, I guess one way to kind of distill this and I can try to leave the listeners with this, there's a famous quote from a Bush 41, that's George H.W. Bush, a Bush 1 economic advisor by the name of Michael Boskin. And he memorably said, he said, quote, potato chips, computer chips, what's the difference? $100 of one or $100 of the other is still $100. 
Now, this line of thought is kind of taking the old Ricardo view of comparative advantage, which leads you to kind of a chalkboard neoclassical economics view of free trade absolutism. It's taking that to its logical conclusion. And it is, it is saying that as long as GDP is maximized, no matter how we are calculating GDP, which itself is kind of an inherently arbitrary calculation, no matter what maximizes GDP, that is best. So effectively, who the hell cares what we're making? It doesn't matter whether we're making semiconductors that are so vital for everything that we put a chip into, from your phone to your car to F-35 planes or, or as potato chips. But the problem, the fundamental problem with the GDP fetishists is that that is not how you actually have productive capacity. Actual production, genuine, legitimate production of durable goods that can sustain a people and sustain a nation state is extremely important, is indispensable as both national security and economic reasons. And that doesn't mean that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, you heard Julius there. I mean, he certainly does not disagree with everything that Friedrich Hayek wrote, nor do I, of course. I mean, you have to be kind of economically illiterate to do so. The, the, the price system, supply and demand, and they, all these various tools from your Econ 101 intro course still have, a lot to te- still have a lot to teach us. But there have been real, real, real drawbacks to globalization, everything from kind of the, the desiccation, the dilapidation of the American Rust Belt, the opioid deaths, the fentanyl crisis, the death of despair, the entire offshoring of these various supply chains and entire industries so that our arch geopolitical foe, the Chinese Communist Party, can just kind of have this sort of Damocles hovering above our head. We saw that, we saw that at the beginning of COVID when it came to personal protective equipment. Not good. And something has to change. And Julius is really kind of the tip of the spear. So once again, if you're not subscribing to American Affairs, please do go ahead and check it out. One other thing that we touched on the notes that I just want to briefly comment on here, we talked about kind of Russia, Ukraine and the failure to learn the lessons of the neoconservative boondoggles, the Afghanistan nation building, this idea that you can basically kind of export Madisonian constitutionalism into these third world Sharia backwater hellholes. Look, I see this same moralistic urge happening now in Ukraine. And I I wrote my most recent column on this. This is happening once again before our eyes is you see the exact same folks who just have not learned the lesson. And it's not it's not directly analogous. I'm not necessarily obviously comparing Kiev to Kabul or anything like that. But it is this notion that every single conflict can be viewed through a very simple kind of Western versus other broadly defined prism and that the Western side necessarily has to win no matter what. And when it comes to from a current U.S. strategic standpoint, what that means is that the U.S. is pursuing what I would refer to as a Ukrainian maximalism strategy, where we are effectively going to launder off no matter how much taxpayer money it takes down to the last dollar down to, down to the last cent to feed vladimir zelensky's thirst to retain every single square inch of the luhansk the donetsk regions of the donbass in eastern ukraine let alone crimea which apparently according to a fairly recent ish referendum voted 97 percent to actually join the russian federation not ukraine this this is just insane Okay, so again, the U.S. interest in Ukraine was to prefer Zelensky to a Lukashenko-style Belarusian Putin puppet state. That ship sailed in May. The fate of the government in Kiev has not been an issue since May. At this point, we are quibbling 
over towns in the far eastern region of Ukraine that I don't give a damn about, and nor should you. Once again, thanks for joining the show. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.